Hello, and welcome to another episode of TPI's podcast, To Think Minimum. I'm Chris McGurn, TPI's Director of Communications, and this week we're fortunate to be talking with Maya Bracken, and I hope I pronounced it the correct way, who is an assistant professor in European law on the faculty at Maastricht University, which I probably butchered the name of that, in the Netherlands. Maya also has the distinction of being part of our AI conference, which was held earlier in this week, and we will be discussing with her some of the issues she covered and presented in her paper, which is entitled Do Algorithms Rule the World? Algorithmic Decision-Making and Data Protection in the Framework of the GDPR and Beyond. For those of you who are not academics, and I myself am in that camp, we'll start by finding out what GDPR is, and she will go into uh, what she presented at the conference yesterday, as well as get some of her opinions on how the conference overall went. We are also going to be joined by Scott Walston, TPI's President and Senior Fellow, as well as Sarah O, TPI's Research Fellow. So without further ado, I will hand it over to Sarah and Maya for a conversation that we hope you all enjoy. Thanks for coming, Maya, to Washington, D.C. I enjoyed your presentation yesterday. Would you provide just a top-level summary of your research from yesterday? Yeah, first of all, thank you very much for inviting me, and you did a great job in pronouncing my name and the name of Maastricht, which is located in the Netherlands. So what I presented yesterday is the questions related to automated decision-making, or maybe even better to say to algorithmic decision-making. So what is actually algorithmic decision-making? Is decision-making based on algorithms. So algorithms, very simply speaking, is a set of steps to accomplish a certain task, but they can also make complex decisions, such as, for example, whenever you go to a bank, they can estimate your credit record, credit score, or when you go to insurance companies, they can estimate your risk. Or they also provide very often for targeted advertisements. So when you serve the web and then you book a room in New York, suddenly you get a lot of advertisements for other books in New York. So my research is focusing a little bit on legal issues of this algorithmic decision makings and also the question of the right to explanation of the citizens. Great. Maybe that's a good time to ask more about the right of explanation and maybe some definitions from the GDPR. Yeah. So first, I believe we should just clarify what GDPR means. It's the General Data Protection Regulation, which is a new data protection package in Europe, which is going to be applied as of 25th of May. So in Europe, there is currently quite a lot of initiatives for companies so that companies become compliant with the GDPR. And now with regard to the right of explanation, more specifically, you should know that this is a field which is quite a battlefield for different academics. So uh, academics disagree very much as to whether the GDPR introduces this right to explanation or not. I am more on the side of the camp which says there should be a right to explanation, even though it is not maybe explicitly written down in the article. And the importance of this right to explanation lies in the fact that people should understand why a certain decision was taken and to also be able to exercise their rights to contest that decision. So they do have a right to contest the decision and this right can only be effective if they know why exactly the decision has been taken. Of course, there are a lot of obstacles to such a right explanation. One of the main obstacles is a technological obstacle, the fact that you cannot really explain a complex algorithm. But further research is needed in this regard. Do you know a little bit about the European privacy framework that it's more conservative than, or um, I guess regulatory, than the U.S. framework? What kind of burdens does that regulation place on businesses, new firms? And maybe the question is, what are the opposing views to right of explanation? That it's too costly 
or not well defined? That's a very good question, actually. The, the privacy package, I believe you said it correctly, it can be seen as more conservative than in the US because it does institute a very high level of protection of European citizens. Now, the burden that it places on the company is that it, come, it actually introduces a new concept, and that's a concept of risk assessment, as opposed to rights-based assessment, which was previously valid in previous legislation. And that means that all the companies, when they process data, especially when they process sensitive data, such as data about race, religious beliefs, sexual orientation, they will have to make a risk assessment before they process the data. And especially this risk assessment will be necessary whenever they use this algorithmic or automated decision-making. Now, the problem with the GDPR partially is that it only applies to individual citizens and many academics have been wondering what happens if you have a group of people. Uh, for example, you are trying to profile a group of people living in a certain geographical area which is more prone to criminal acts and, and things like that. So that is something where GDPR will need to be still complemented, I believe, on, on the long run. One question I have about the GDPR as I'm reading about it and getting caught up while you're talking about it is there was a two-year period where they were supposed to implement it. Have there been any hiccups or has your research been modified in any way to see how the process to implement GDPR has actually gone into effect? I would say that practically speaking, there have been a lot of hiccups because we are aware that many companies, especially small and medium enterprises in Europe, are not yet prepared for the GDPR and the deadline of 25th of May is fast approaching. So there have been trainings offered also in a, at our university. Uh, we have recently established a European Center on Privacy and Cybersecurity. Our director is my colleague Cosima Munda. Um, they are offering a lot of trainings for data protection officers, which which will ensure compliance with GDPR within the company. And big companies, to the contrary to SMEs, they have already, as to my information, introduced a lot of compliance plans, and they are already trying to really figure out which provisions they will have to comply with. And I know that there have been Excel files prepared for that and on a high management level. So I would say that for smaller enterprises, there are still a lot of hiccups and a lot of problems in this regard. Have you heard people worry about unintended consequences? So, for example, I was just on the phone with someone who is worried that the GDPR, they're worried about its effect on piracy in the sense that they're concerned that they will no longer be able to query the who is the ICANN's who is database to help identify music or video or other kind of pirates. And I think they were just sort of speculating. And it seems like this has lots of potential implications on many industries, maybe some good, some bad. Have you heard people worry about uh, problems in you know, sort of specific industries like that? Yes, there has been a lot of oppositions also from certain voices to the GDPR because the GDPR, as I mentioned already, offers quite a high level of protection. Mm -hmm. And that, of course, has a downside of what you mentioned, that if you protect everybody, like even those who are illegitimate downloading online content from the data protection perspective, you're of course much more incapable of trying to identify them and sort of chase them. From that perspective, I would maybe mention that there is another instrument that is quite relevant in Europe and that is the Network Security Directive, the, the NIS Directive, mm -hmm. which is quite important from the cybersecurity perspective. So I always believe that data protection measures should go hand in hand with cybersecurity, which is also a very much rising trend in this field. So yes, there has been been a lot of critics also of the GDPR, especially from that perspective, but also from other viewpoints. 
One of the things about the GDPR, it seems to me, is that it really puts a stark light on trying to balance preferences with people's preferences with just straight out economic growth. Mm -hmm. Whereas we know data is a tool for innovation. Companies want more and more and more data. And the more data they have, the more things they can do. Mm -hmm. The more data they have, the less privacy we have. And we know that Europeans tend to have a stronger preference for more privacy than do Americans. Mm -hmm. Do people in Europe, I mean, it's I know it's wrong to call all Europeans the same, but <laughs> do they feel like that's a, a fair trade-off? Like they know that they're giving up something because they feel that this, oh, this that the privacy is more important and it's something they want to protect, even though it, it comes with certain costs? I believe that that's definitely a prevalent opinion mm -hmm. in Europe, that, you know, the protection of privacy and data protection, which are both fundamental rights in Europe, mm -hmm. does outweigh a, a potential uh, maybe economical The fact that economic growth would be maybe a little bit lower because of that high protection uh, is not considered an issue by the European citizens. However, what I should mention is that current economy doesn't only run on personal data, but also runs a lot on non-personal data. And in this regard, the European Union has issued now recently a lot of documents in the framework of its digital market strategy and also the midterm review of the digital market strategy in 2017. And there has been a proposal for a legal act which would enable free flow of data in order to boost that economy. So I believe that EU and its institutions as well, they are aware of economic opportunities that the data offers, but not necessarily to the detriment of the European citizens. Mm -hmm. So on that side of it that you're talking about, it's trying to apply the same notion of trade, you know, free trade and goods and services to intangibles, right? like data, free trade and data exactly. within Europe. Yes, mm -hmm. yes, yes. Free trade and even just free flow. Well, it depends on the company, of course, mm -hmm. what kind of economic value they assign to the data. Right, of course. But, uh, mm -hmm. I just wanted to ask, because we're talking a lot about the GDPR and what it means, but to get back to your paper and your research on the algorithms behind it, obviously you presented at our AI conference yesterday. So I was just wondering how your research is showing that algorithms are dictating the collection and uh, protection of this data, and then where you see the evolution of machine learning to protect this sort of data from a European context. So the issue with the algorithms with regard to the data protection is that it is quite difficult to inbuilt data protection in the design of the algorithm. So we know that the Anne she has coined the term privacy by design. And with regard to complex uh, algorithms, it's quite difficult to implement that privacy by design within the algorithm. I would say that algorithms can have a very, very important social impact and social implications. For example, I know that Facebook is scrapping data from Facebook accounts and trying to profile individuals which would have a certain medical issue. I know that they have predicted even which kind of people would be uh, have of a different sexual orientation or would have psychological problems and so on and so forth. And algorithms can even have impact on a democracy. We have seen issues with regard to recent elections in the US where algorithms have played a quite important role with predictions of results of elections and also with maybe, it's quite a strong word, manipulation, but uh, influencing the voters as to how to vote. So the thing with algorithms is that you can really profile a person and you can really target a person as to his or her personal need and you can impact his freedom of choice and his freedom of decision in a way. And you can see that also sometimes I'm wondering whether all the products suddenly on uh, that we buy on the internet are going to be customized or not. Are we going to now... Uh, But you're be, saying that that's a bad thing. 
I mean, isn't it better for people to have? I believe there are good sides and bad sides. Mm -hmm. So customization, I believe it's a good thing. But whenever you're influencing your personal choices, such as for election choices, that's I find problematic because I believe that advertising in this regard should be open to everyone and everybody should have his or her personal choice. But sometimes when you're targeted really for a specific product that is not necessarily linked to you, these algorithms can also make wrong decisions. And that's where I'm worried about. Right. Elections seem to be a different, it's different than selling you soap. Usually the way we deal with that here has been that you have to disclose that it's a political advertisement in support of so-and-so. And that has not been applied to online platforms yet. Mm-hmm. And so I think, I mean, that's part of the debate here, mm-hmm. how to deal with that, because we have you know, First Amendment issues on how much you can control what people are saying online or even you know, advertisers. But we want people to know what the ad is truly about, if it's for elections. How are European countries dealing with that? Or are they? Well, that's something that we have to see with regard to the GDPR, how the GDPR is going to be applied in that regard. So the GDPR does contain a provision which regulates automated decision making. I spoke about it yesterday, also this famous Article 22, which is in a way, if you read it, quite restrictive because in principle it prohibits automated decision making. However, when you go a little bit closer into it, then you see that there are so many exceptions to that that it looks like a Swiss cheese. So in the end, I think that this article, it looks very restrictive but the problem with it is that I don't think it reflects the reality because every time an automated decision is being taken, the person who is actually the target of this automated decision has the right to object and always has the right to human intervention. So I'm always wondering, for example, if I'm buying a flight ticket, which is priced on the basis of dynamic pricing, and I want to have a human intervention in that process, I just don't see how that can happen. It also seems like it would be incredibly inefficient. Yes, Ticket prices are different because... For yes. all kinds of reasons. Yeah. So Article 22 says, conditions for automated decision-making, decisions not based solely on automated processes. And so that's what you're saying, that there's an appeal process? There are two different things. One thing is that, as I mentioned already, whenever the decision is taken on the basis of personal data through automated processing, citizens have the right to human intervention. And I believe from what we discussed with Scott just now, that human intervention, it should be provided in the most critical cases. And we should ensure that human has the final decision on the automatic decision. However, this is not always possible. If you have a question of which is less relevant, like dynamic prices, then obviously human intervention is going to be less important. And then there's this other right, which is the right to object, which is not really a right to appeal and the right to object to that automatic decision, which also empowers the European citizens in the way of getting the possibility of not agreeing with that decision. How would that work in practice? And that's, setting aside whether it's good or bad, how in the world yeah, does that yeah. happen? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm wondering how that's going to happen. I think that, again, we have to distinguish between automated decisions and automated decisions. Mm-hmm. So if you have, for example, use of automated decisions for diagnosing, mm-hmm. and then imagine that a machine learning algorithm would suggest a particular treatment, which would also have very strong side effects on the patient, then probably the patient should have the right to say, I don't want that. I, I object to that decision. Can you, doctor, revise that? Can you check how this is going to be made? 
But for everyday small profiling, that's not going to be possible. That's why I'm saying also that this article is not really realistic. I mean, it, it does also seem to, what you're talking about, fits with other things that people talked about at the conference yesterday, which is you get prediction and then at some stage you still need judgment. Yes, exactly. To know what to do with it. Exactly, um, yeah. I, I guess... think that's a very important element. And I think we should, and that I think it would be a bad thing if humans always follow these decisions blindly and do not revise them. Now, of course, I can understand that we might trust the machines more than we trust us. But there should be sort of a, a mechanism of collaboration between machine learning decisions and human decisions, because somebody mentioned yesterday at the conference that, you know, intuition, sometimes it's quite an important element as well. And I agree with that. Now, this is a really unfair question, but how do you think, how are we going to sort of make the decisions about where to draw that line? I mean, we already let machines make a lot of decisions mm -hmm. for us, you know, certain if an elevator is in large buildings, some systems you select the floor you want to go to and you wait for the right elevator to come, it tells you where to go. And so you've let it decide what the fastest way is to get to your floor. Mm -hmm. You put your destination into ways and it tells you how to get there. And we just mm -hmm. trust it more or less. So I would say that's also in line with the GDPR is that whenever a decision legally or significantly affects an individual, that's when we have to have these rights. Now, of course, how do you draw the line between whenever a decision significantly affects somebody or not? I gave an example yesterday. If I get an uh, online targeted advertisement to buy a car and I follow that advertisement and I actually buy a car, does that significantly affect me? It's very debatable. I wouldn't say so. But then more important decisions about medical treatments or other issues uh, whenever I don't know, a woman is pregnant and she's trying to suddenly take certain decisions and she's influenced by this algorithmic decision-making, that's where you are much more significantly affected, I would say. Related to privacy injury, I know the FTC has been holding workshops and research to measure injury from privacy, mm -hmm. and that's an active area of research. It's hard to put a number on mm -hmm. those kinds of injuries. Mike, like very small decisions by the ad that you see, or very large injuries. Do you know about this literature, how to measure injury? Or you call it impact? I believe the measurement of this impact should not only be restricted to privacy. I believe that there is impact, a lot of impact also on other fundamental rights. Just for example, right to dignity. If a person with dementia uh, works together with a robot in order to improve his or her state, that can have a considerable impact on human dignity, for example. Or you also have other rights that can be affected, such as freedom of expression and other fundamental rights that are relevant. So we shouldn't limit ourselves just on privacy. I believe it's a broader societal issue where on one hand we have to ensure that fundamental rights of citizens are respected and on the other hand we have to ensure the possibility of technological development because technological development is necessary and is positive I believe in general and will bring about a lot of economic innovation and economic growth so there is always this balance that needs to be struck between one and another. I think we're entering a new era of trying to measure non-market activities so mm -hmm. that we started doing that with the environment 30 years ago and now we have this whole other set of non-market activities that have value. We don't know how to put that. We don't know how to quantify them yet. Exactly. So do algorithms rule the world? 
bottom line. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's a question. It's difficult to say with yes or no, but I think that in a few years, maybe in a decade, that could be the case. That's why I'm always emphasizing how important it is that humans remain in control in the end. I'm not very pessimistic, like in terms of Elon Musk's view of how the world will be in a few years. I believe that artificial intelligence is very important and is actually a core development in the field of technology right now. But I think that mechanisms should be in place that actually the wealth that is generated through that is distributed in more or less equal way among people and that might sound quite socialist but I, I believe that we should not allow that the wealth that is generated through this analysis of data and algorithms is only kept in the hands of elites. That's very important, I believe. I was shocked yesterday for a room full of economists. There was a lot of optimism, too, for what AI holds for, for people. Any final thoughts you wanted to give on your paper, the conference yesterday, or any topics in general, AI or otherwise? Yeah, so I'd just like to say that we are in exciting times where we are really on the verge of the fourth industrial revolution. And I believe it's very, very important what you're doing right now here at the Technology Policy Institute to inform ordinary citizens and everybody who is interested in pod podcasts about the implications of artificial intelligence, because I believe that people are not yet aware enough of those implications. And yeah, I'd just like to thank you for your good work in this regard as well. Well, thank you for coming all the way over here, uh, presenting your paper and yeah. talking with us today. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. And now we get to go have cupcakes because it was Sarah's birthday, as we should have mentioned at the top of the, the podcast. Birthday. So that's why we have cupcakes in our little kitchenette. So thank you again, Maya, for being here. And we hope you tune in to this and all of the other future Two Think Minimum podcasts.